You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the issues of human rights and humanitarian law. My name is Gabriel Stein. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Richard Falk. He's an international law and international relations scholar who taught at Princeton University for 40 years. For a six-year period beginning in 2008, he served as a United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories occupied since 1967. In this wide-ranging interview, we took the opportunity to get his thoughts on the state of world affairs today, to talk about his controversial UN report on Israel, and also on his recent book, Revisiting the Vietnam War and International Law, Views and Interpretations of Richard Falk. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. It's nice to be back in Sweden after, what, 20 years or so? Things have changed a lot in those last 20 <laughs> years. Um, you've, you've had a long career uh, and been there around the block a few times, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Uh, are you surprised with where we are right now, the state of affairs? Uh, yes, surprised and disappointed, actually. I had the feeling, maybe after the Vietnam War, that the West had learned some important lessons. And one of them was to accept the realities of the anti-colonial flow of history and to give up this whole militarized pursuit of hegemony over the rest of the world. And uh, that's one area of disappointment, that this kind of militarization of uh, especially American foreign policy has, if anything, uh, grown more intense. And then, of course, I hoped after the Cold War that the opportunity would be taken to get rid of nuclear weapons in particular, the, the claim had always been that these weapons were needed as a deterrent against Soviet expansionism. After the Soviet collapse, there was no rationale except the idea of geopolitical primacy to, to maintain that kind of control over uh, the global order. And I had hoped also at that point that moves would be made to strengthen the UN, to make it a more uh, autonomous uh, source of governance that could address global challenges of the sort that we now associate particularly with climate change, but also possibly with nuclear weapons and world poverty and disease, a number of things that are globally constituted and can't be addressed adequately by just uh, the pursuit of national interests and international cooperation based on mutual interests, which is sort of the liberal internationalist hope, is that you can... Uh, solve common problems by uh, cooperation. But cooperation among states that are very unequally uh, related to the problems turns out to be very difficult to achieve without uh, very strong global leadership. For a while that was provided by the US after World War II but has increasingly, uh, the U.S. has increasingly abandoned that uh, contribution to world order. And now with the Trump presidency, it's actually repudiated that global responsibility and has uh, advocated a, a kind of regressive uh, America first uh, sort of political ideology. So, and then the final 
uh, I guess, source of disappointment is this rise of right-wing populism around the world, again epitomized by the Trump election and by the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom, but also by the right-wing autocracies that have emerged in countries like India, Brazil, Philippines, Japan, a whole bunch of important countries that are now governed uh, by right-wing uh, democratic constituencies that cast doubt on the wisdom of relying for public order on the will of the people. It's, it's a uh, complicated uh, reassessment of what is, what is it we should hope for in uh, political life. So I think to give a long answer to your question, there are reasons to be not only disappointed but to be worried because uh, some of these problems, uh, especially the risks of nuclear war and the urgency of responding to climate change cannot be addressed by a uh, framing of the issues that arises in the present uh, world configuration. So, as I say, um, I'm both disappointed, worried, and not very I don't see much light at the end of these tunnels. So now we've started off on an extremely depressing tone. So <laughs> your question. I know it's my fault. <laughs> so let's let's try to uh, be a bit positive if we can. See if we can squeeze some positivity out of this. What would the medicine be then, uh, if if we look at the present world configuration uh, and recognize that there are major challenges? What do you think we need to do? Well, I think the uh, medicine uh, or the, the uh, kind of positive response would be, first of all, uh, understanding where we're at and why that's so dangerous and regressive. Uh, secondly, uh, mobilizing... Uh, the kind of uh, healthy progressivism that is associated with what might be called a radical humanist outlook, sensing that we as a species are threatened by these issues and that it's rather anachronistic to think only as nations and sovereign states, that we need that kind of holistic universal consciousness that I think is uh, emerging, especially among younger people. You may have noticed the reaction of this these high school students to the gun violence in Florida recently. And I, th I find among uh, student uh, audiences that I uh, speak to a recognition, a much greater recognition than the politicians have of both why sh we should be uh, much more accepting of strangers and people with different religions, different backgrounds, and also uh, doing something that is connected with the long-term well-being of the species, which may be difficult to reconcile with contemporary capitalism as it operates globally. So part of the structural explanation of why things have gone badly 
since the end of the Cold War, let's say, is the uh, inequalities and environmental insensitivity of neoliberal globalization and its emphasis on the efficiency of capital rather than the well-being of people. I was in Vietnam recently and was very impressed by their, their uh, development strategy, which is needs-based rather than growth-obsessed. And in a generation, they eliminated extreme poverty from the population, something that wealthy countries like my own have failed to do over many generations. There's still in the U.S. 49 million people dependent on food stamps in an affluent country like the U.S. No health care for the poor and uh, v very expensive, unaffordable higher education that even the middle classes are increasingly challenged by. So I think an awareness of these issues uh, was represented again in the U.S. by the Sanders campaign, uh, which had a lot of vitality. And according to public opinion polls, he was, even before the election between Clinton and Trump, the most popular candidate in the country. So maybe we can recover this faith in the wisdom of the people, which doesn't seem to be borne out by the way in which uh, leaders are being elected. And that has to do, of course, with another set of issues that money plays too big a role in who gets elected in this media-dependent digital age. All those, all of those issues that you bring up. Do you think that the UN can cope? And and what's the future of the UN? Uh, you mean the role of the UN in? Uh, you see, I think the UN, as now constituted, uh, is very important in sort of clarifying symbols of legitimacy, but very. Uh, impotent in altering behavior, particularly of the leading states, the P5, and particularly uh, the U.S., Russia, China, are uh, geopolitical actors not responsive to uh, the will of the international community. And uh, the U.N., to be effective has to become detached from geopolitics to a much greater extent. This would be easy to achieve if the political will existed. You could have a much less politicized selection of the secretary general. Now it's a kind of race to the bottom because the, the choice has to be approved by the P5 and the P5 is overwhelmingly concerned not to have a UN leader who can challenge their basic uh, national orientation. The other thing is to make the funding of the UN dependent on international tax rather than on the contributions of the leading states. So that, that could, those kind of adjustments could be easily made if the political will was there, but the political will is absent. In fact, it's opposed to these kind of ideas because these geopolitical actors in particular are sovereignty-oriented and don't want to give up uh, their discretion to an international institution. At the same time, the global challenges are of a character that they can't be met by states acting either alone or in concert. They can, uh, and as I say, especially in the present 
atmosphere where there's no global leadership coming from leading states. So one is really in a very state-centric world at a time when the challenges are increasingly global or at least regional. So we're stuck with the UN as it looks right now, but there's no better alternative at this point. Is that a, is that a good summary? I, I think that's uh, the most uh, realistic way of uh, appraising the situation. Things happen that we don't expect, and uh, maybe even good things can happen that we don't expect. The Cold War ended, apartheid was uh, nonviolently uh, dismantled, even the Arab Spring, all those things were unpredicted and unpredictable. Although, after the fact, experts like myself come along and tell you why it had to happen. Uh, so, from the looking into the future, we can't see a real way of achieving a breakthrough, but we also know that we uh, can't very well anticipate the future. The Chinese have this proverb, there's nothing harder to predict than the future. And uh, it could be that uh, something awakens the conscience of humanity. We have all these extreme weather events, and I don't know what, they're having some effect on public awareness, but as so far it hasn't translated into anything politically relevant. Okay, so let's go into the recent past and, and talk about uh, a report that you uh, were a co-author of in 2017. Um, at the UN, and it found that, in quotes, beyond a reasonable doubt that Israel is guilty of policies and practices that constitute the crimes of apartheid. So can you tell me about the report and uh, what happened after it was released? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a sort of long story, but I'll try to uh, summarize it. The UN Economic and Social Commission for West Asia, what's called ESQA in UN jargon, commissioned myself and a uh, historian uh, who was an expert on apartheid to write this uh, report inquiring into, from an academic perspective, from the perspective of international law, whether the policies and practices of Israel toward the Palestinian people as a whole, and that's the uh, most radical part of the report because it's been generally understood that the way in which uh, the West Bank and Gaza are occupied is a form of domination and discrimination that uh, does resemble a type of apartheid. And it's important, as our study tries to show, that the crime of the international crime of apartheid does not depend on resembling the South African structures of domination. What it, it the essence of it of the international crime is the reliance on inhuman acts uh, in order to perpetuate a structure of domination. Uh, based on d distinctions of race, subjugation of one race by another for a specific purpose. And the purpose in this context is the maintenance of a Jewish state. And the only way a Jewish state can be maintained in what was for a long time a non-Jewish society is by uh, brute force and by dispossession so that the Zionist uh, program involved not only 
establishing a homeland and a state, but also of being a democratic state. You can't be a democratic state without a demographic balance in your favor, ethnic favor, particularly if you claim to be a Jewish state. And so dispossession and population control was always uh, a contradictory element in the Zionist vision. They wanted to be both progressive and yet uh, dispossess the people that lived in the society. When the Balfour Declaration pledging the establishment of a Jewish homeland was issued in 1917, the Jewish population of Palestine was somewhere between 5 and 6 percent. Even by 1947, when the partition uh, resolution and the typical British colonial policy of dividing countries as they left them, you know, which they did in India, Ireland, uh, a number of others, uh, even then the uh, non-Jewish population was about 70% of the country, even after Hitler, after immigration, all of that. And the population was never consulted which in the era of self-determination was a kind of reversion to a colonial pattern, solving a problem in Europe, which was a real problem, but at the expense of the resident population. So our report, in a way, uh, summarized this historical situation and showed that the not only the occupied Palestinians, but the, those that had been dispossessed were victimized by this apartheid structure. And the minority living, the, the 20% of Israel itself, was under this uh, structure of subjugation. So that was the, of course, the response was rather hypocritical and uninformed. It was directed at the, basically, at the word apartheid being used in relation to Israel's administration of the Palestine. Of Palestine. And uh, as far as we know, n there's been no effort to come to terms intellectually with the argument. And it's hypocritical because Israel's leaders, going back to uh, Ben-Gurion and Rabin, the most respected Israeli leaders, have themselves used apartheid internally to talk about what happens if we don't solve the Palestinian problem, we'll become an apartheid state. They've said that repeatedly, but in Hebrew, internally. But when it's said internationally, going back to Jimmy Carter when he said, he wrote a book with the title War, uh, Peace or Apartheid, they treat that as anti-Semitism. So it's a hypocritical con effort to manipulate the public discourse, which Israelis are brilliant at. And in fact, I've been thinking recently about this whole 1948 uh, war that resulted from the partition resolution of the UN, which was the UN solution to the uh, problem. And it's always been called in the West a war of independence, the Israeli war of independence, but really it's a partition war because uh, it was a war against dividing an existing society without the consent of the people living in the, in the society. And from, if you abstract the, uh, that tension from the Jewish-Muslim uh, encounter, it's entirely reasonable to uh, object to partition in the, and, the, and from partition, comes the whole eth ethos of a two-state solution, which again is imposed and 
the Israeli, uh, even though they don't want uh, at this point uh, a Palestinian state, no matter what, they prefer that to a one-state solution, at least as a political compromise. They're moving toward a one Israeli state solution uh, because uh, better, they at least would be able to maintain the Jewish state in the Jewish part of the partition arrangement. So at least as a provisional solution, that was better for them than to look toward a single secular state. And it also allowed Israel to manage the public relations with the rest of the world. They could say, we're, at, we're seeking peace. Uh, and we ha the Palestinians are unreasonable because they don't want to compromise. And so the, the, this analysis of the discourse is very relevant to understanding how the issues have been framed over the years and really, uh, in my view, misinterpreted from a normative or ethical or international law point of view. Um, so how does it feel to be caught up in that type of storm personally? Uh, because you were accused of anti-Semitism. Yes, um, as a Jew, being an anti-Semite is, of course, a strange uh, kind of uh, juxtaposition to deal with. Uh, I had uh, long avoided this issue because I sensed that there would be this kind of reaction. I think it's very irresponsible on the Zionist side to play this anti-Semitic card in relation to critics of Israel because it confuses the uh, nature of genuine anti-Semitism, which is hatred of Jews. See, criticism of Israel is the new anti-Semitism the real anti-Semitism is hatred of Jews. Which is a problem. Which, of course, <laughs> is a huge problem. And not completely irrelevant, I mean, not irrelevant to the way in which Israel has behaved toward non-Jews in the political community under its control. But so it's, it's a double disservice to uh, associate people that are trying to find a, uh, a solution to the issue but are critical of the way in which Israel has behaved over the years. And I genuinely believe that the only path to a sustainable peace for both peoples is to dismantle this apartheid structure. And in that sense, the South African precedent is helpful because the only way to find uh, a sustainable peace between the African majority and uh, the white dominant minority was by dismantling apartheid. And in a way, that was a much more risky enterprise for the uh, white elite because they were the min uh, small minor relatively small minority, whereas uh, Jews at this stage anyway, would be uh, equal or uh, even a majority unless you bring back a lot of uh, the people that have been living in refugee camps and uh, in exile. So at the same time of this uh, report, the UN backed away from it, it seems like. At least the top leadership kind of backed away from the report. Is that, is that fair to say? Uh, well, it's, it's again, every, all these issues are uh, more complicated than they seem. Okay. Uh, the Secretary General uh, of the UN, recently uh, elected, uh, ordered ESQA, this, commission, this uh, commission of the UN that uh, was responsible for the report, 
to take it off its website. It didn't ask it to repudiate the report. And in fact, the 18 foreign ministers of the member countries of the commission unanimously endorsed the report and recommended its uh, uh, reliance uh, in other parts of the UN system. And in addition, the director of ESQA, who had uh, commissioned the report, resigned on principle, sending an open letter to the Secretary General explaining. And she's now in the process of establishing an NGO to study worldwide apartheid uh, practices. So the uh, backlash was ambiguous in its effects. Also, because there was such a firestorm created by the issuance of the report and the objections to it, it's probably been read 10 times as much as it would have been had it been quietly received. And according to what we were told by Esquire itself, before it was taken off the uh, website, it had been requested more than all the reports in the whole history of ESQA. And they, they issue many reports every year, including some that have gotten quite a bit of attention in the past. So I don't know how to view the whole experience, but it led to uh, a kind of uh, personal backlash because Ambassador Haley attacked me personally and... Uh, and there were a couple of lectures I was supposed to give in in uh, London uh, back in March of uh, a year ago that were canceled as in uh, because of the pressure exerted by uh, Zionist groups. And and they also said that you were potentially undermining the credibility and the work of the UN. I mean that was part of the discussion as well that the report had done that. Uh, yes, yes, there was that that argument. Uh, it sh- uh, technically, the report was uh, accompanied by a disclaimer. This was not a report of the UN. Mm. It was a report commissioned by the UN by ac- for acad- of an academic character. And really, it should not have been uh, assessed except if it was incompetent or somehow uh, distorted from uh, uh, not using evidence or academic methodology. never has been accused of that. And it was a very careful, I think, uh, academic study. And uh, my collaborator is really a a, a very... Uh, widely respected uh, scholar. She had worked a lot on South Africa and lived in South Africa for a long time. So we tried to do uh, what we thought was an objective academic study, recognizing that it was controversial and that it was quite reasonable to anticipate uh, disagreement and controversy, but not this kind of... uh, dismissal and uh, a personal ad hominem attacks. Let's move away from the, the Middle East and to Vietnam. Um, I'm an American and I was born in 1978 and Vietnam was always very much discussed. Um, and growing up in the 80s, it was, you know, we will never have another Vietnam was the mantra. <laughs> Uh, even though we had other conflicts going on at that point. Um, but it, it was still very much in the mind. Uh, I think now for uh, students in their 20s or, or younger people, don't know so much about the Vietnam War. Um, but you're arguing that there's a great deal to be learned from that war. And I wonder, so what made you start to think about why you wanted to revisit it? And, and, um, and when you think about it now in the context of what's happening, uh, globally, what conclusions can we draw? Well, I, th- I came uh, increasingly to the view uh, over, I suppose, the last uh, decade or so uh, that the raw, 
that the wrong lessons were learned from Vietnam, that the uh, effort of the government was to uh, avoid acknowledging the real explanation of the political defeat despite the military superiority. See, the puzzle of Vietnam, which uh, bewildered even many uh, critics of the war, including, I remember, Noam Chomsky, was sure the Americans would win the war because uh, many of us had this realist uh, political consciousness that military superiority is an agency of change. And what the puzzle was, how did the Vietnamese win despite being dominated militarily? And that's the main unlearned lesson, that, they're, that, they're, that the, uh, the experience of the anti-colonial wars showed that uh, soft power uh, triumphs over hard power in these uh, nationalist struggles. And if you look at all of the anti-colonial wars, they were won by the side with the weak, inferior military technology. But America couldn't face that conclusion because it would mean you think outside the military box. And the one, uh, I think the strongest uh, insight of the uh, military industrial complex critique that Eisenhower initiated uh, a long time ago was the understanding that militarism had become uh, bureaucratized as a permanent element of governance. And therefore, it was too threatening to uh, suggest that uh, we're living now in a more soft power world. We sort of recognized this with regard to uh, major wars that they would be mutually destructive and the problem was to manage power relations, not to try to win wars. But we didn't accept that and still don't accept that in relation to uh, the West versus the non-West. And I had a student, uh, General Petraeus, who rose through the ranks uh, of... Uh, uh, military command by sort of reinventing a rationale for counterinsurgency warfare. And uh, his way of uh, interpreting the Vietnam experience was that we weren't sensitive enough to the uh, political culture of the country we were dealing with. We had to be nicer to the people that we were trying to control. And uh, of course, that had, a, that had this resonance that we could still fight these kind of wars and uh, have good hope of winning them. There was a famous conversation after the Vietnam War between an American counterinsurgency specialist and a Vietnamese colonel. And the uh, Vietnamese, the Americans said to the Vietnamese, you know you never beat us on the battlefield. And the Vietnamese colonel responded, yes, that's correct, but it's irrelevant. And understanding that irrelevance, that the intervening country has a limited interest in prevailing because it can retreat to its homeland, whereas the uh, country which is embattled has nowhere to go. So that it's an absolute commitment for, from their side, and it's only a relative commitment from the intervening side. See, and, and that's part of the, I think, the politics underneath 
this shift in the balance of forces away from hard power and towards soft power. Of course, the uh, hard power can still inflict horrible uh, costs on a society. Uh, four million or so people died in the Vietnam War, and yet the political outcome is sort of irrelevant. Uh, Vietnam was always more worried about China than the U.S. It's eager to participate in the world economy. There's, the only difference is you have a somewhat more efficient uh, leadership and economy than you would have had, had hypothetically uh, Saigon prevailed in the war. So it's, it's a kind of absurd war. But what it did, which was very upsetting to the national security elite in the U.S., was the loss of the war inhibited future interventions. And it was the senior Bush, George H.W. Bush, uh, that uh, felt that what the, was then called the Vietnam Syndrome, which was this inhibition on using force because of Vietnam, uh, he said after the first Gulf War in 92, we finally kicked the Vietnam Syndrome. But he made a category mistake because the Vietnam Syndrome had to do with national struggles, not to do with fighting between uh, opposing militaries where naturally superior military force will prevail. Uh, so it's a category mistake and uh, it, it also uh, led to this idea that now the uh, West can fight what they called zero casualty wars. It can use its technology fight from the air with missiles and later drones and never really uh, suffer uh, real losses. Even in the Gulf War, the greatest casualties uh, experienced by the uh, uh, Allied side were friendly fire, uh, killing your own people with your own uh, weapons by mistake. And then the Kosovo War, there were no casualties. It was completely conducted from the air. But again, it was a not a this kind of struggle. And when, the, when they tried to apply that thinking to Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya, that was a repetition of Vietnam. At least they didn't send large numbers of ground troops. So it was, uh, and, and the outcome therefore was chaos rather than uh, defeat. So there, it was a shift and, and that was the, the wrong lessons that were tried to be uh, put into practice was uh, professionalize the military, don't rely on a draft because when you professionalize the military, you don't get the middle-class backlash against a failed war effort. And the other thing is try to manage the media. Uh, you know, the, one of the expressions of the Vietnam hawks was the Vietnam War was lost not on the battlefields in Vietnam, but in the living rooms of Americans. So that, those were the two things they tried to do. And they tried to apply that in the Gulf War, but as I say, uh, in 92, but that was a category mistake. You can, you don't have the pro, you can win those wars. If, if the, uh, the other side, the Iraqis in this case, are foolish enough to fight them, uh, which, you know, Saddam Hussein, that war itself is ambiguous because Saddam Hussein purportedly wanted to withdraw, but the Amer Americans didn't want them to, they wanted the war. So uh, it's very complicated, all these, uh, each one 
has its own uh, narrative and counter-narrative that makes it confusing uh, to get get at what really happened. Do you think that the United States government realized that their approach in Vietnam was wrong, uh, but couldn't admit that to themselves, um, and and that the their entire approach to warfare in the next thirty years um, has just continued to run the same way blindly because they can't admit the fact that it's not the right approach. Well, I think you know to some extent your question essentializes the U.S. government. There. Uh, different tendencies within the government. And I think mm. there were some people, particularly probably in the intelligence community, that did uh, did all along understand this, mm. including were giving advice during the Vietnam War that what w- uh, that w- that the leadership was either misled or misleading mm. uh, uh, the American public about the. Uh, conduct of the war and uh, the success in the war. Uh, But as I say, I think the dominant motif was we've got to find military solutions to political problems. And that the militarized state depended on selling the public that idea. That idea was dominant. And whether some people were cynical and said, uh, this is the only way we can get our budget and so on, is hard to know. I think there was probably a mixture of ideology and cynicism and pragmatism in the government that accounts for this. But the central point is this mistaken notion that in the 21st century you can solve political problems by military force. That was a reality in the colonial period where small amounts of force efficiently served the interests of the European colonial powers. But it doesn't work any longer in this uh, broad category of disputes where one's trying to control the internal political life of a foreign country. And even countries of a small size make it extremely difficult to control its uh, political destiny. And and, uh, Uh, The Libyan example is a good one where, again, it was possible to devastate the country and to overthrow the leader, but it wasn't possible to establish order and even less possible to establish a political alignment favorable to the West. Now, again, that should have been learned from the Iraq experience, where again it was total uh, military domination, got rid of Saddam Hussein, it was a certain kind of regime change, but you could, there was no way to reestablish order at an acceptable political price and much less way to uh, achieve a political alignment favorable to the intervening Uh, the politics of the intervening countries. And if you look at what was being written by the pro-war people before the war, they said, we'll be welcomed like we were in Germany and uh, Japan as liberators. And uh, they went through this uh, uh, ritual of constitution writing and elections and were somewhat shocked to find that the western back candidate got 10% of the vote or so, you know, it was completely uh, And this is the same thing that happened in Afghanistan and Iraq, yeah. the same exact model, yeah. where they and said they, they, will, they will be so happy when we come and liberate them. Yes. 
and their backed candidates all yeah. fail. Because the idea of national identity and national uh, autonomy prevails over uh, some kind of Western conception of uh, human rights and democracy. And, and you, the West, and particularly the U.S., delegitimized itself by these interventions. And if you look at the public opinion polls in uh, much of the world, the U.S. is looked at as a much bigger threat than terrorism or Russia or China. Uh, and we, ca we can't... Uh, absorb that message and, and if you listen to and that's not only Trump it's also the uh, mainstream uh, American political uh, dialogue is basically uh, we're the good guys trying to civilize the rest of the world and uh, uh, we look at uh, civil and political rights and the right to free expression, and we overlook our own bad record with respect to social and economic rights, which many of these countries that we criticize are doing much better at than we are or the West is. I could talk to you forever about that, but uh, I don't want to go down that. <laughs> Maybe next time. Um, Two more questions, if we could do it pretty quickly. Um, so you write that systematic violations of international law lead to geopolitical disappointment, human suffering, societal devastation, and a nihilistic atmosphere of international lawlessness. Can you tell us then, um, try to being a bit more positive here, uh, what, what's the alternative like when you think about it? I mean, what's the utopia? Well, I think the uh, first step toward uh, uh, a better, uh, both better foreign policy and a more humane world order is respect for international law and uh, uh, UN authority. And I try to argue that uh, the insistence on deciding when to use force or when to engage in warfare uh, as a matter of national discretion works against national interests. There's a misunderstanding again of what are the national interests of a country like the U.S. in the 21st century and even in the last part of the 20th century, that we would have been much better off as global leaders and the world would be much better off had we respected international law rather than felt uh, the ideological compulsions of the Cold War uh, induced us to violate it. Can I um, give you a hypothetical to test that? What would the response to 9-11 be? 9-11? Um, yeah, uh, under that paradigm. Yeah, I think 9-11 does challenge some of the uh, kinds of things that I was saying about in the v Vietnam and post-Vietnam context because those earlier uh, uh, un uh, interpretations dealt with state-to-state -state connections. When you're dealing now with non-state to state uh, on a, a basis that uh, blurs the distinction between crime and war. See, that's, I think, what 9-11 did. Mm -hmm. And we, the, the West and George W. Bush and uh, the American uh, uh, society, too mindlessly opted for the war paradigm in responding to 9-11. It's, of course, impossible to rerun the tape of history, but had we uh, treated terrorism as it had been treated always in the past, 
as a form of international crime and and achieve cooperation, uh, which I think we would have achieved at a very uh, intense level, uh, we might have been much better off. See, again, war isn't really the response. To, and that's why this uh, inability to think outside the military box the foreclosure of the moral and political imagination is such a significant geopolitical handicap because it doesn't allow the discovery of the functionally best response to security threats. There's no question 9-11 was a security threat. Of course, if you look deeper, more deeply at 9-11, it was a blowback from using Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan as a kind of anti-communist. We weaponized extreme uh, Islam in the ideological setting of the Cold War. And so that, again, is important to understand how this evolved. And that discussion even takes place when they were discussing whether to weaponize different groups in Syria. It's the yes. same. It's the same discussion. And at that time, the argument was no, because look what happened in Afghanistan. So something had been learned between uh-huh. <laughs> Afghanistan no, right. and, in Syria, and, and Syria. In Syria, in some ways, was a replay mm. of uh, Afghanistan, and they felt. I mean, there was this thinking that the most effective opposition to the Damascus regime came from al-Nusra and ISIS, and so therefore they, uh, at least Turkey and the U.S. sort of closed their eyes to and swallowed that support. And it was Russia that was actually fighting against, uh, Russia and Iran, ironically, that were fighting against the the real ex- Islamic extremists. Just a last uh, question. So, so going forward, um, what are the prospects and pitfalls of international law and human rights today? Do you think law is, by its nature, somewhat ambiguous and subject to contradictory interpretations? That's what keeps lawyers in business. That you can think in different ways about who is, has law on their side. So you have this uh, linkage between law and power, which is particularly evident in relation to economic uh, subject matter. So it would be important if you want international law to really work for the human interest as well as the national interest to... Uh, strengthen the role of independent judicial authority, the World Court, the International Court of Justice, which again, the big powers don't want to have much of a role because they don't want to lose their uh, control over events. So international law, like uh, the UN itself, needs to be separated from geopolitics to the extent possible, feasible. But at the very least, it has to be understood that there, is these, there are these connections between law and power that have often distorted the role of law in human affairs and law uh, from international law for uh, generations, uh, legitimized colonialism, for instance, and foreign investment in underdeveloped countries, unjust enrichment, and the like. Uh, so uh, law is neutral in its uh, normative foundations and it depends who controls the formation and the interpretation to understand whether it works for 
private interests, national interests, or human interests. And my uh, effort has been to sort of try to align international law to a greater extent with human interests and to reinterpret national interests so they wouldn't collide with the human interest. That's a great place to stop. I really want to thank you for visiting the Institute and taking the time to talk to us. I really enjoyed that. Well, thank you for your questions. It was a good challenge. Richard Falk is an international law and international relations scholar who taught at Princeton University for 40 years. On Human Rights is brought to you by the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with more interviews with experts from around the world on the latest issues affecting human rights and international humanitarian law. <laughs>